Good morning and happy New Year to everybody. It's good to be able to be in God's house on the first Sunday in the year. Just uh, one extra notice, uh, with school starting back, we're going to need to pack up. Um, and we would just appreciate a little bit of um, help with the uh, uh, musical instruments uh, and the stuff. Some of the musicians are struggling with their backs. Uh, and uh, we would just appreciate a little bit of help at the end with that. That would be great. Some of you, uh, and some of you would remember when 24, the series, first came out. Anybody can remember 24, the series? Taz, you remember 24? A little bit. Jack Bauer, you know, great uh, sort of special agent who is trying to deal with some other rogue special agents. And one of the fascinating things was that it was, it was really well built. It was one of the first series, uh, pre-Netflix, I think, one of those uh, series that you, you'd be waiting w- with a cliffhanger every week, uh, trying to see what's going to be happening next. And then usually the series would finish with an absolutely humongous cliffhanger, thinking what's going to be happening next. But I think after seeing it a couple of times, you just realized the hero was never going to die. In whatever crazy circumstances Jack Bauer would find himself in, he was just never going to die. So it kind of became a little bit pointless in watching because he kind of, it kind of lost all the sense of suspense at, at the end of it because it just was going to be the hero always living on. And one of the amazing things about Christianity is that it is marked by the very reverse of that. If you watch all the superhero movies, very often it's the hero never dies. But in Christianity... The hero was born in this world specifically in order to die. And what's even more amazing about the Christian faith is that this hero that steps into our world and he comes specifically to die, he calls us, me and you, to be dying heroes. It's a totally different narrative than the world that we live in. The world that we live in is obsessed with survival. While our call to follow Jesus as his disciples is actually one marked by dying to self. We're going to look at, uh, at a particular uh, verse, really, uh, one verse uh, from Galatians 2.20. But I really believe that this message, for me, I, I think if I, if I was told that I had maybe one or two messages to, left to preach either before Jesus comes back or I was taken to be with him, this would be one of the passages and this would be one of the messages that I would preach because I think it's incredibly significant. It's always been significant, but particularly in our Kairos time that we live as a Western church, I think this is incredibly significant as a passage. I don't need to overstate this point, but the Western church is in crisis. You and I, and particularly if you've been around the block for a while, you would know of many churches that have closed down. So many rural churches that have been sold into becoming sort of mini mansions. So many city churches, some of them that have become restaurants, apartments, mosques, you name it. It is that sense in which the church in the Western world is struggling. And while that is happening, 
as well on a sort of visible level in terms of what is actually happening with the churches, the churches that are growing resemble more and more an entertainment factory. Even if you step into a service, it looks more like a gig or a nightclub than it looks like a church. And very often the Christian scene is driven by a consumer, addicted consumer spirit. So I'm going to go where it's bigger and cooler. And there's always going to be another church that's going to be bigger and cooler. And therefore we'll just keep on moving. And the Western church that has been thriving and has been getting larger in numbers has always grown primarily through transfer growth. Christians going from perhaps smaller churches into bigger churches. Hiding the fact that if you look at it all with a broad view, the church in the West is struggling. The influence of the church in society has really dwindled. I was saying probably trying to overstate the point and shocking a few people in the first Sunday in December, we live in a pagan nation by whole. I I got convicted afterwards playing classic FM all throughout December. There's been a lot of carols, so there's been a a, a saving grace day. But the reality is the vast majority of the people in our communities, they don't even know the basic Bible stories. They don't even know about the David and Goliath. They don't know what the Christian nations in the West have been founded upon. And the influence of the church is dwindling if it has not disappeared at all. But you know, it's easy to point a finger and say the church out there, Christianity in the West, the reality is I am part of that. I am part of the church. And the problem lies not just with the church in the West. The problem lies with me and the problem lies with my own heart. It is a heart problem. It's the one problem nobody talks about. If you were to open the newspapers today on a Sunday and look inside, you would find people talking about a lot of problems, economical, medical, the environment, politics, anything. But nobody talks about the problem of the heart, which is the most significant problem that we have. And this is why I think it's so important that we recover this particular great message and I simply called it die to live die to live the crisis in our heart is this and somebody in the in in the mid 80s really started looking at this whole issue this is not a new but started looking with a prophetic voice the problem in the western church has been that so many people have received Jesus as their savior but they've never received Jesus as their Lord. What do I mean by that? They embraced salvation, but they rejected sanctification. In other words, I want Jesus to be my savior, to give me a ticket out of hell into heaven. But apart from that, I will continue to live my own life on my own terms with Jesus church Christianity as a little bit of a side extra that I can fit in 
wherever I want on my own terms. And we forfeited this. Very often churches had what was known, and some of you would have gone through it, a discipleship course. And discipleship became a course that you did after you became a Christian, you made a decision for Jesus, instead of being a lifelong journey. So you did your discipleship course, and you put a full stop on it, and that's it. When in fact discipleship is that journey with Jesus, being an apprentice to Jesus that carries on every single day of my life. Let's read a verse as Colin helps me to put it up. It's simply this. It's a verse that Paul is talking about. And in a stark way, it's almost as if Paul is writing his own obituary. It's kind of eerie. It's, if you've read it many times, it loses the sense of craziness that this verse has to it. And this statement has to it. But in it lies something incredibly deep. And Paul is writing in, in the context of a letter that he sends to the church in Galatia. And the church in Galatia was having a problem in that people started coming into the church and simplifying it. They started bringing false theology. They started saying, Jesus is not enough. You need something extra. And they added some of the parts of the Jewish thinking and the law to it, confusing people and making them really messed up theologically. And Paul realizes this could have had a seismic influence in their theology. You cannot add anything to Jesus. The moment you add anything to Jesus, you're on sinking sand. You're gone. And Paul is desperate to get this point across to them. And he makes this mic drop statement in which he illustrates probably the very heart of the Christian faith as it's not been always understood in the Western church. And this is what he says. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, Paul is saying. In other words, Paul is, Paul is simply saying, I'm dead. I am dead. He realizes that this would probably would have been a strong statement for everybody who would hear it. But he's trying to bring people back to Jesus. So in order to understand what Paul, what are you trying to say, we must understand what actually went on. Jesus came into this world, and we're moving beyond the narratives of the Christmas time with all the cuteness that's attached to it. And if you travel all the way to Easter, you find that actually Jesus is coming into the world is incredibly brutal. And it's a, almost a stark image to the cuteness of Christmas when you see the brutality of the cross. When Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless Son of God, comes to die to pay off our sin debt towards a holy and righteous God. And he dies, and through his death, he brings us salvation from our sins. That's what I said to you. Jesus is the antihero who comes to die, but through his death, he brings me and you salvation and redemption. But also part of the story of Jesus is not just the incarnation that we look at Christmas and the crucifixion that we looked on Good Friday, but Easter Sunday, which is the triumph 
powerful point of Jesus' mission when Jesus rises from the dead into new life. And through the new life, he declares a defeat of a sin and Satan. And he also brings us the fullness of the salvation. Not just the payment of sin, but a new life. And Paul is saying, I am mirroring in my life. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life that I now live, Christ lives through me. So for Paul, this is almost a mirror image of what happened to Jesus. For very different reasons, of course. But just as much as Jesus came to die, Paul, when he starts following Jesus, it starts with a death. A death to self. And after that moment, a transaction happens. And as we die, as we are being crucified with Christ, as we die, new life comes into us as the risen Christ begins to live through us. So it's a parallel with Jesus' death and resurrection. The same should be happening to anybody who wants to be a follower of Jesus. There needs to be a death and a resurrection to new life. And when Paul is talking about that death, he's using the same language and he's using the same imagery that Jesus went through. It's a gory image. For those of you who had the guts to watch The Passion of the Christ, which was uh, incredibly gory, but actually very realistic, that's what Paul is saying. That's what happened to me too, not just to Jesus. It's this brutal, sacrificial, painful self-death. When I'm dead, in order to be resurrected to new life, to follow Jesus. You see, for Paul, this would have been very powerful. And this is an imagery that we very often talk about at baptism. And this is why I, I, I keep saying it to you without wanting to offend other Christian traditions. But the normal Christian birth includes baptism. If you started following Jesus and you haven't been baptized as an adult, your own decision, your own statement before the watching world and the invisible world, you missed out on something that is essential to being a disciple of Jesus because that's what it does. It mirrors this death. As you go into the waters, you're saying, I'm dead to myself. I'm dead to the old things. I'm dead to selfishness and sin and the old life. And when you're coming out, it's that triumphant imagery of somebody who's coming out into a newness of life. And we are looking at having a baptism in these crazy times. We haven't been able to do it, but we're looking to have a baptism. If you've never been baptized, I I would say you're kind of in an odd place. I, I don't want to be judgmental. I want to be just honest with you. You need to get baptized because it's part of the Christian experience of beginning to follow Jesus. And for Paul, it would have meant, remember that when, when Paul, before he met Jesus, there was a before and there's an after. And that's always the mark of the Christian life. There's a before and there's an after. And before Paul met Jesus, Paul was a zealous, self-righteous, high-ranking in terms of theology, persecutor of Christians. In fact, he was present there at the stoning of Stephen, one of the early church leaders, He was that zealous, that keen. That was his identity. He was the guy that was defending Judaism 
to the very end. And he knew everything. He was a righteous man. He was a passionate man. He was a godly man. He was a man with an agenda. And after his Damascus Road experience, when he encounters Jesus, that Paul dies. He's gone. He has this 180 degrees change of trajectory in his life. And he lost everything. And the turnaround was dramatic. Because before, he was this zealous, self-righteous persecutor of Christians. And then he becomes a persecuted follower of Jesus who goes into the Gentile world in particular, which would have been doubly hostile to plant churches. And he's always on the run, always chased out of places, always persecuted, always debated against, always in trouble. No sane person would ever choose to do that, to live behind this incredible life of being probably a high-ranking scholar in Judaism, also known to be a, a real leader with everything that comes from that, and to go on the run into the Gentile world to preach Jesus, always with a threat of death on his life, facing imprisonment, facing beatings, even facing troubles from the very churches that he planted to. This is only explainable in one way. Paul already died to himself. And Christ was living through him. It's even significant, a change of name. He actually changes his name. And maybe it's something in that. Maybe when we start following Jesus, our identity should change totally. The old person should die. And Paul, formerly known as Saul, he dies. He's dead to himself. If he was to meet other people that he'd known before, he would say, sorry, wrong person. Saul is dead. He has been crucified with Christ. And now Saul lives as Paul because Jesus lives through him. That's the only way that life makes sense. Because Saul was crucified with Christ. And now Jesus was living through Paul. And living this very different life. And that's at the very heart of his personal story. And Paul is using this personal statement to say to people, this is now who I am. This is what's happened to me. Now, when we're using that strong language, I have been crucified with Christ. People could be freaking out, going, what is this? That's like kind of weird. Again, if you're watching Passion of the Christ, you're like, I don't want to go through that. I don't want to be crucified with Christ. Obviously, it's figurative language that Paul is using. But in many ways, it helps us to understand that this was not a hostile takeover. Because Paul explains it. He explains why he decided to be crucified with Christ. Why he wanted to leave the old life behind. Why he instead chose to let Jesus live through him. And it's right at that very bottom, that, that, that sentence, who loved me and gave himself for me. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the hinge of this change. It's because... Paul, for the very first time in his life, discovered a God who wasn't just the Almighty, but he was the one that later on, 
when he writes to one of the other churches, he calls him Abba, Daddy, Father. He has found an intimacy with God that he never had before. Why? Because his Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. That's the reason. That's the motivation. That's why he can go through the crucifixion of self in order to let Jesus come and live through him. And everything in Paul's life changed because of that. And it's only been explained through that. The Apostle John writing in 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. You know, I want to know what love is. You know, everybody wants to know what love is. Everybody's searching for it. And the answer is right here, John is saying. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That is love. And Paul has discovered this incredible love, this incredibly selfless, sacrificial love displayed by Jesus on the cross. And blown away by it, he's saying, now I'm deciding to give my life to the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And I'm choosing to crucify my old self, let go of my life, and let Jesus be the one that lives through me. The reason the Western church is struggling today is because I believe it never grasped this. The evangelistic messages preached from the 50s all the way to now have been very much in meetings where somebody was being told about Jesus' sacrifice. And the line very often used is, if you were to be hit by a car as you're going, or by the bus, as you're going away from this meeting tonight, do you know where you're going Are you going to heaven or hell? If you want to choose heaven, put your hand up and start following Jesus. There could have been an upgrade to that message. And maybe somebody would have talked about the sins in your life and talked about the stuff that you struggle in your life and you want forgiveness for. If you want forgiveness, just come to Jesus. Put your hand up in a meeting and say a sinner's prayer through which you come to Jesus. I could do a poll this morning, and I could ask how many of you can identify with those two types of messages. But how often have you heard the second part? Because that first part is true. And the second part of the message is this. Jesus doesn't just come to offer you salvation from your sins and eternal life, but he calls you to follow him for the rest of your life and die to self and turn around. Some of you have been with us in the church for a while, and you would remember we didn't have the tiered seating. We'd be sitting the other way. The the front of the church would be over there, and we had Jay Fallon come and speak to us. Fiery Scottish ex-addict used to head up Teen Challenge, and he came, and he was was, uh, unorthodox. (laughs) And he came into CFM, and I'm not going to try to do a Glaswegian accent, but he screamed at the top of his head, Are you dead yet? Are you dead yet? And people freaked out. But he was right. Are you dead yet? Because that's the very message that I think Western Christianity is missing. We all want to live. We all want eternal life. We all want salvation from sins, and they're good things. But are we ready to die? 
so that Christ can live through us. That's why I'm struggling as a disciple of Jesus, because I'm not dead yet. That's why we're struggling at Jesus, because instead of having people who have died to themselves, there's still a lot of people who live according to their own agenda, with Jesus as a little bit of an added on. And it's all about percentages. For the most keen, probably it's 80% Jesus' control over my life. And Jesus would be saying to us at the beginning of this year, are you dead yet? Like the Apostle Paul. And the crazy thing is we play this silly game. And we settle down for this watered down version of so-called Christianity. And our lives struggle. And we struggle. And we forfeit the fullness of God simply because we choose not to surrender to him. Our control. And we blame the church for being rubbish. We blame the worship leaders. We blame the preachers. We blame our emotions. We blame the nation that we live in. We blame everything. We blame everything. And the truth is, we want to be in control. And in our lives, there's no room for two thrones. There's only one throne in my life. Only one throne. Is Jesus on the throne? And he doesn't share the throne with anybody else. Or it's me on the throne. Or it's somebody else. Or it's something else. And Paul is saying, I made that choice to get off the throne in my life. To die to self. Painfully. Because this is hard. Because you die to self not just once, but you die to self all the time. It's a choice and it's a journey and it's a process that gets repeated again. Some of you might remember Air Force One. Harrison Ford, anybody? Yeah. I mean, it's the, the, the president of the, it's a fictional story. Obviously, the president of the United States is in an airplane and it gets hijacked, and uh, then they have uh, refueling. I'm using commoner's language, not specialized language here. Uh, they, they use another plane that's coming alongside. Uh, because the pilots are all dead and nobody can fly the plane and they put a zip wire and everybody goes through apart from the president who remains behind and then one of the terrorists is fighting off and then you see the plane, Air Force One, just diving into the water and you're like, oh, what what, what happened? And in the end, you just hear this this message that comes through. um, Basically, Liberty 2-4, which was the refueling plane that the zip wire went to, it's changing call. The Liberty 2-4 is now Air Force One. Do you know why? Because the president was on board. It changed the identity of the plane. A plane that was a refueling plane suddenly became Air Force One. It didn't look like Air Force One. It didn't have the qualities of Air Force One. But because the president was on board, it became Air Force One. And that's a difference in our lives. We can choose to live with ourselves in control, or we can choose that path of being crucified with Christ and having the life of Christ come and live through us. And the simple two questions for us this morning is really an invitation of coming and dying to self. You might say, what does that mean? (laughs) It means what it says on the tin. It simply means that everything of me, my time, my money, 
my career, my ambitions, my ideas, everything is laid down and buried. It's all left behind. My talents, everything, everything about me. And then the flip side of it is not just coming into dying to self and letting go of all these things that we're just trying to cling to and control, but then letting Christ come and live in us and through us. What does that mean? I often say to the students at Cape Ray, it's a kind of heads, hearts, hands. It's everything, all of us. Jesus taking control over everything. Our mindset, the way we think, the way we think about the world, the values that we have, the ethical decisions that we make should all be shaped by Christ's rule. Our affections, the things that we are passionate about, the things that drive us in our life, should all be the things that Jesus is interested in. And the things that we do, everything that we do, the way we spend our time, our money, our resources, should all be dictated by him. It's coming under the lordship and rule of King Jesus, where everything that he does gets done. Some of you have started your Bible reading through the year. You're doing it. Some of you are doing it in a confusing way. Man, I tried to do that with a McChain, you know, with four different passages. Oh, I'm such a linear thinker. I kind of really get confused if I'm reading one from the Psalms, one from Genesis, one from Ephesians, wherever. So I'm kind of sticking it to really simple. Just kind of. So I'm in Genesis, and I, 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 I just see the obedience of Noah in, in, in the midst of a generation with such a corrupt heart that actually even the intentions of their thinking was corrupt. So anti-God that God had to deal with that. And yet in every detail of whatever God gave him to do, with all those details, man, I hate it when, 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 when you get detailed advice. It's kind of, oh, does it really have to be like that? Does that screw really need to go there? Does, you know... Every little detail. Noah did everything as the Lord commanded him to do. That's a picture of being dead to self and letting Christ live through you. Submitting to his kingship. Whatever God says gets done. No questions asked. Not because we have to, not with gritted teeth. I mean, it will be hard. But we do it, why? As Paul was saying, because Jesus loved me and gave himself for me that's the motivation and that's my invitation this morning maybe you've died to self before but frankly you know maybe you've climbed out of that tomb that maybe you died to jesus 20 years ago and you climb out of that tomb and slowly you crept up on the throne and while jesus used to be on the throne in your life you've been just slowly kind of you know kind of trying to shove him off and take control of your life My money, I decide. My relationships, I want to do what I want to do. Jesus, I don't really care what you're saying. And of course, we're not as callous to say it like that. We're far more subtle. And maybe it's just time, and this is a good reminder at the beginning of the year. Let's just step off the throne this morning. And also allow Jesus to come into our lives and live through us. Aren't you tired of people meeting you? I mean, you're all very nice people. But frankly, compared to Jesus, you're second rate. And so am I. 
I just want people to meet Jesus. I want Jesus to live through my words, to live through the way I look at people, to live through the way I think about people, to live through the way I treat people. And that can only happen when there's that exchange, when I die to self and he begins to live through me. Let me illustrate it. I'll invite the band to come back. And let me illustrate it with a, with a real-life story of one of my heroes. His name is Eric Liddell. And he was probably one of the most famous Scottish sporting heroes. He was an Olympic hero in the Olympics in 1924. He refused to run in the heats because some of the heats were run on a Sunday. That's a guy who was crucified with Christ. And he no longer lived, but Christ lived through him. And his ethical decision, you know, it was forfeiting success at the Olympic level because he had a theological, ethical mindset that said to him, I don't want to do that on a Sunday. That was his conviction. So he lost the chance to win gold in two different events, but he, he won anyway in the 400 meters and he was nicknamed by, uh, uh, by the, the journalists at the time, the Flying Scotsman. So he had a gold medal and a world record, 47.6 seconds. But what isn't known outside of the Christian realm, the rest of the story of Eric Riddell's life, although he had a success from a sporting point of view, his commitment was very different. So the next year, Liddell returned to China, where he had been born to missionary parents, and he returned to China as a missionary. In 1932, he was ordained as a minister, and he was married in 1933. And very often, just traveling on a bicycle, uh, braving constant fighting between different Japanese and Chinese warlords in the particular area he was ministering to, he shared Jesus with isolated communities, often being forced to leave his wife and children behind. The description of his attitude when asked about it was his two words, complete surrender. In March 1943, Liddell, along with other Americans and Brits, entered a Japanese internment camp. He was appointed a maths teacher and supervised the sporting program as well. Every morning he would rise up to study his Bible And he actually was the cheer of the camp. Unfortunately, his health deteriorated rapidly. A brain tumor ravaged his body, and he suffered with incredibly severe headaches. Shortly after his 43rd birthday, in January 1945, Liddell collapsed. His last words spoken to the camp nurse were simply this. It's complete surrender. Like the Apostle Paul, Eric Liddell was crucified with Christ. And he no longer lived, but the life he now lived, Christ lived through him. And that's our invitation this morning. To die to self, to lay it all down, painfully, realizing it's a hard, hard journey. And choosing to let Jesus take full control as king in our lives. 
so that when we talk about Jesus, we don't just talk about a savior. We also talk about a king under whose rule we are every single day of our lives. It's suitable that we're at the Lord's Supper this morning. And as we sing the next couple of songs, I want to do it with reflection and with an opportunity to respond to the Lord individually. This is, this is my journey and this is your journey. This is not something that we can do in bulk. Nobody else can do that for us. Nobody else can do the die to self instead of me. So let's stand and sing these songs in worship, realizing uh, the good sacrifice of Jesus. And then when we come to that place when we are at his table, we realize that actually what we're doing is we are responding to his wooing love. And although it's hard, it's not a sacrifice. It's our loving response to his loving sacrifice. Let's stand together and respond to him.